My name is Gabrielle Zevin, and I'm the author of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Author Gabrielle Zevin says her new book, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, is about love, art, video games, and time. But prior knowledge or experience with video games isn't necessary for readers to possess. The book follows video game creators and artists Sadie and Sam through 30 years of their friendship as they collaborate and learn to love each other and other people. I recently spoke with Gabrielle Zevin about the link between Shakespeare and video games and the nature of human collaboration. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. This book is so jam-packed with so many levels of nuanced detail, and I, I can't imagine that you have an elevator speech for it, but I'm going to ask you for one anyway. Can you give our listeners a, a brief summary of the book? Is that something can, you have? <laughs> <laughs> I can certainly try. I will say that it's funny you should put it that way, because I have had a bear of a time trying to synopsize the book in an elevator pitch. So I had started out several months ago saying, you know, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow is about love, art, video games, and time, which then I realized was incredibly vague. So I expanded <laughs> this a little bit. And, you know, you just worry, like, I feel like sometimes, you know, this isn't a book that is necessarily about its plot as much as certain books are about their plot, you know. Uh, so I've expanded this a little bit, but I'm not even sure that this is like, comprehensive in any way. Um, so Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is about love, art, video games, and time. It's the story of a 30-year friendship and artistic collaboration. Sadie Green and Sam Mazur meet as children, and they spend their whole lives making games together. They have a romance of the mind, if not the body. Sam, for a variety of reasons, a childhood injury, but I, I don't want to reduce it to this trauma. It's also really just Sam's essential self. He's not able to or particularly interested in love and sex and even being in his own body. And yet, despite this, he's a very romantic person and he loves Sadie Green more than anyone else in his life. And the highest expression of himself and his capacity for love are the games he makes with her. And maybe this is true for Sadie as well, but Sadie is a physical person and she needs more than what Sam can give her. So it's a friendship and to an extent a marriage story, but it's also just an impossible puzzle for them in which there's no obvious solution. What if the most important, by which I mean defining person in your life is not your spouse or your child. What if it really was your colleague and your friend? So I think the book is the story of two brilliant people who are fantastic at making art and somewhat less fantastic at being human beings. It's about how rewarding and tender and volatile creative collaboration can be and what it feels like to truly share one's work with someone. It's about why it's worth it to continue loving people and making things in an imperfect and uncertain universe. And yes, it's also about video games. I love it. So, you know, the title Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow it is from Shakespeare's Macbeth. Yes. And I want to ask you about Shakespeare in a moment, but mm -mm. talk to me first about the meaning of the phrase tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, especially in the world of video games. Yes. Well, you know, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow in the world of Shakespeare is probably one of the bleakest speeches in all of Shakespeare. And it's probably the first piece of Shakespeare I ever committed to memory. And I can do it on command, but you know, no one ever asked me to do it on command. So, but I could do it on command if I needed to. Um, so it's one of the bleakest speeches in all of Shakespeare. And yet the character who invokes it in my novel finds great hope in this speech. The idea that every day we're alive is a chance to start again. 
And he also finds a metaphor for video games with their infinite lives and chances for redemption, you know? And so it's funny, I think in the book, it sort of functions as the way you can find a meaning from something that isn't actually the meaning that is intended, you know, that you can read something over and over again, and it can change into something else. And that's sort of what Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow does for this character, Marks. Although that said, in the book, when he cites this speech, he's actually trying to convince people to name a company that. So it's part of a pitch. So I guess it's a bit of a question, like how much he's a good salesman and how much he actually believes that what he's saying, you know. So, you know, we mentioned the role that video games play in this book and, you know, that it's just one level, forgive the pun, but <laughs> the book is not only about video games. In I have a cursory knowledge of video games. Like, you know, for instance, I've played Pong like <laughs> probably five times. I've played Pac-Man and Galaga. And my most extensive <laughs> experience was with Ultimate Doom because, you know, shout out to David Hogeboom for introducing me to the lunchtime death match. But <laughs> I'm wondering, you know, how would you classify your knowledge of video games and how much knowledge of video games should readers have for this book? You know, that's a loaded question. So just to start, <laughs> the first thing I would say is that everybody games, even when they don't know they're gaming. So if you're using any social media platform, if you're using Instagram or if you're using Facebook, you are playing a game. You know, the reward system there is hearts, but it is basically structured similarly to a game in a way, only there's kind of no winning it and you'll just play it forever, you know? And so I think most people, even when they don't game, actually have some familiarity with gaming just because of the way sort of the internet has gone in this past two decades. But I also think everybody does have play in their life in some way. So maybe you play Wordle, maybe you play Scrabble, maybe you play a video game. And, you know, I think in part, the book is about the redemptive possibilities and play generally, not just like video game play. In terms of my own background in gaming, I would say it's pretty peripatetic. <laughs> You know, um, like I've been gaming, you know, people will ask me, what's your history in gaming as if I had taken like maybe a game major at college or something <laughs> like that, which, you know, it does exist some places now, but not when I went to college for sure. My dad was a computer programmer. And so the first games I ever played were games that came preloaded on the IBM he brought home from work, you know, and so I've been playing games for around 40 years without thinking that much about what they meant or, um, how it changed my experiences of storytelling or life in general. And I think, you know, it was thinking about gaming as a pastime and how many people do it and how much gaming and play is a part of our lives. That was a jumping off point for me wanting to write this novel. So the first generation of people to play video game as children were born in the late 1970s or early 1980s. People call that the Oregon Trail generation. Um, often micro generations are named for their access to technology. And so that refers to the fact that you probably might've encountered Oregon Trail in a computer lab as a kid. You know, <laughs> So I was interested in writing a story where an industry was going to come of age alongside the people in it. So I see the book as a Kunstler Roman, which is kind of getting off your question, but you know, it's the coming of age of these two artists and their art happens to be video games. There's a lot in common with writing novels or making paintings or many other kinds of art. So to like, we're gonna circle back now, a long, a long winded way of saying that I think um, you don't need really any experience with gaming to read the book. I think it's a book that's about friendship and existence. Um, and I do think video games is more than a subject, but I don't think you have to have that knowledge or that experience to read this book. 
Now I want to get back to Shakespeare a little bit because, you know, we, we mentioned that Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is from Macbeth and it's the first piece of Shakespeare that you've committed to memory. And I will ask you to do it if you want me to. But, you know, I also, you know, you also had, you know, like the St. Crispin's Day speech, a reference to mm-hmm. that from Henry V in there. And I want to talk to me about, you know, the deep dives into literature you were able to take with this book, because, you know, not only Shakespeare, but Emily Dickinson and Mm. and what. So talk to me about the deep dives that you were able to take in this book. Yeah, you know, I didn't I don't know if I thought of them as deep dives as much as I thought of it as the way the things we read and the art we consume kind of provides a shape to our lives in a certain way. And it's something I've written about before in a book like The Storied Life of A.J. Fickery, you know, and so I think we find meaning from the art we consume, basically. And so I think that's what it is for me. I certainly, you know, have read Shakespeare throughout my whole life. I've acted some in Shakespeare in college, I never wanted to be an actor. I always have to clarify that. But I did once play Gertrude in Hamlet. And and in a way, the reason I wanted to do that when I was in college is because I thought it would make me a better writer to have acted and inhabited in that way. And I think it did. And so I think that's a thing that is throughout the book. I, I also think I was interested in the way in which play is like play, like PL, they're both spelled the same way. I don't know why I was going to spell it, but, <laughs> but, but play like a theatrical play, you know? And so that was the thing that really pushed me toward Shakespeare. Um, just thinking about the ways in which, like when you decide to play a game, many kinds of games, you are entering a sort of role. And so to me, there was a link between these two acts that I thought was really interesting. You know, Shakespeare runs through the book for sure. There's Twelfth Night, you know, there's some Hamlet, there's Macbeth, both in the part we already spoke about, but also in Sam and Sadie's relationship, you know, where you kind of, (laughs) to me, that play is largely about a marriage and sort of marital ambition. (laughs) So I think sometimes we see that in Sam and Sadie's relationship. With regard to Emily Dickinson, the poem that is the epigraph of the book, you know, that love is all there is, is all we know of love. It is enough the freight should be proportioned to the groove, is a play I've probably thought about every day for the last 20 years, you know. And so to me, it's a really interesting poem because it starts with a riddle, which it solves with a metaphor around machines. And in a way, that's the book in four lines for me. And so that's kind of where the Emily Dickinson started as it runs through the book in many different places. So there's a video game in the book that um, that Sadie Green creates when she's in college, and it's called Emily Blaster. And I understand that this has been created in a real game that anyone can play. Is that right? Did Knopf Yes, you can go this? to... Go ahead. <laughs> yes, I think it's the first video game that Knopf ever made. And I, I kept saying <laughs> to them, like, I think maybe they should make more video games. You know, like, I would like to play, you know, Station Eleven, or I would like to play Great Circle or something. I think there, <laughs> I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's improbable, but there could be some interesting, like, game expansions of the Knopf universe. But, yeah. but yes, they created this game. I think it's their first game. So that's sort of an honor for me, I guess. And you can play it at emilyblaster.com. And it's a game that I thought 
you know, a, this character would have a, an enterprise. She makes it for a college seminar. So it's one of the simplest games in the book. It's a game that I thought that somebody could have like conceivably made uh, with not that much time and not that much resources, you know? So it was the game that made sense for us to make. You know, I, I liked the subversiveness, the way the game works. It's kind of a riff on a game I played in computer labs as a child. I think it was called Math Blaster where you shoot the, you like have a little, um, I guess, I don't, I'm not sure what, what it was, but you have a little thing in which you shoot the answers to math equations, basically, you know? And so it's kind of like this, you're shooting, you know, parts of Emily Dickinson's poetry. And I like the subversiveness of combining poetry and a shooting game. <laughs> I want to talk about the structure of the book for a moment, because my advanced copy is, is a digital is a digital mm. copy. I, w I didn't have the luxury of being able to flip back and forth or, you know, without without a lot of effort anyway. Um, but then I was go I went back to look at the table of contents after I had finished the book and I was struck by section four, both sides. So I'm wondering if you can talk to me about that section and the back and forth between the A side and the B side, if you could maybe explain to our listeners what that section was all about and what it was trying to accomplish. Yeah, uh, so Both Sides takes its name from a game that Sam and Sadie are making. And what happens when they make this game is that, and I don't think this is that much of a spoiler because it won't mean anything until you're actually reading the book. But, you know, anyway, so Sam ends up really making one side of the game and Sadie makes ends up making the other side of the game. And so in the section, we alternate between their two points of view until they finally come together in the end. And this, this section becomes sort of a metaphor for the fact that they're not working together really well during that time. You know, I was interested in playing with these structures the whole time, you know, like whose point of view were we in and how I could, you know, separate these characters by using uh, this kind of technique, you know. And so a thing that really attracted me to writing the both sides section was thinking about A sides and B sides in period records, you know. So there was an A side, which was the one that people considered to be the commercial hit. And then the B side, which was, you know, less commercial. And so even among bands, there was a lot of argument among who would get to be called the A side to where at a certain point, uh, you know, record companies, if they had a really popular band would be like, no, it's a double A side. So nobody had to feel like they were at the B side, you know? And so to me, it also becomes like a metaphor for the nature of collaboration where you are always bending your will you're maybe telling yourself lies to make yourself feel fine about a collaboration at different points in time. And so there were a lot of things going on when I was thinking about the A side and the B side. When you finally get to the end of the, the section, I think it's like 6B. And I, <laughs> this is something that no one will appreciate, except that you were probably the only person who's asked me about the both sides section of the book so far. But when you get to 6B, you're going to Sadie's apartment, which is 6B. So... Oh, I need to go back and look at that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's not a big point made of it, you know, but that is what happens. Yeah. <laughs> there are so many things in this book that, you know, I've, I highlighted digitally or I did write down in my notebook. I mean, just all of those little nuances, you know, I found myself looking up William Morris Prince and, and speeches erroneously <laughs> crediting, you know, Kurt Vonnegut. And I found myself smiling at the idea of an abundance of caution as a collective noun. But my question is, how long did this book take to write? Because I can only imagine. I mean, thank you so much. I think 
<laughs> I started writing this book. I started thinking about the idea for this book probably four years ago, um, now almost five years ago. And I think I wrote it across about four years. But whenever you say something like that, um, the truth of it is it's like four years and your whole life, you know, like I'd finally reached a point where, you know, there's a part in the book where Sadie and Sam talk about how difficult it is that period of time where your taste exceeds your abilities. And I had finally thought I'd reached a point where the things where my taste kind of matched my abilities. And I think, you know, there's so much attention towards say first novels and it's great when a first novel is just like amazing out of the gate. That wasn't my experience. I had a first novel, I think it was fine. <laughs> You know, but you can also like learn stuff from 10 or 20 years of a novel writing career. And like, so my first novel was published 17 years ago. And I would say that this is a book that reflects everything I've learned. Um, it's a book written by somebody who's mid-career, who's had some successes and some failures, you know. So, so somewhere between like four years and the 44 years that I am is how long it took me to write the book. You know, I'll also say that I began researching the book just after I finished like the book tour for Young Jane Young at the end of 2017. And it, I didn't get that much written. I just kind of allowed myself to research. I finally reached a point in my career where I didn't have to publish as quickly because I'd had enough books do well that I had more financial resources and that made a huge difference. It's not to say I think I rushed the books before that, but it just made a difference to feel like I had the luxury of time. And so I spent a long time just kind of, you know, marinating, I guess, in this world and thinking about it. And then, you know, the pandemic came. And the thing that the pandemic did was that it made me feel more alone than I had ever felt in a certain way. And this isn't entirely negative if you're a novelist, because I think ever, you know, at the point at which you publish your first novel, you're aware that there are so many people in the room with you. Um, but so I had not felt as alone as this as a writer, you know, in any time in the intervening years between my first novel and writing this one. And that kind of just like luxurious solitude allowed me to really hear myself more clearly than I had in the past. You know, it was a, a strange benefit of a horrible time, you know, and so I, <laughs> that's that is to say it, it took me only 44 years four years and a pandemic, I would say, basically, to write this book. <laughs> so early in the book, Sam was talking about designing mazes and eventually games. And he said, to design a game is to imagine the person who will eventually play it. And I'm wondering, is that the same for books? Do you write it imagining the person who will eventually read it? I do and I don't. I think it's a sort of delusion when a writer says, I write only for myself. Because again, after you publish that first novel, you're aware that books are not written for yourself, that at a certain point they meet an audience. But again, some of the dance for me is figuring out how to forget about audience when I'm writing. Um, and I think, again, to go back to the thing I just said, that's some of what the pandemic did for me, was it allowed me to forget a little bit about the audience. And I would say that when I started out, fiction for me was a mask I wore. Um, I would write the characters to not look like me or resemble me in any way, almost as if I had plausible deniability, you know, <laughs> something with regard to this book. And the longer I've written fiction, the more I've begun to write myself and feel more comfortable with that. And so, you know, this book to me is very uh, revealing, I guess, in that way. Do you have 
a hope for readers what they will take away from it? You know, I think I've given up in thinking that I can control how a reader will respond <laughs> to anything. But I know what I hope, what the ideal reader, I suppose, what I hope the ideal reader feels is a sense of hope. You know, there's a, uh, I think sometimes the world seems pretty bleak. I'm not above feeling that way. Um, but there's a poem that I like that I read uh, pretty often when I was writing this book. It's called Poem Beginning with a Line of Wittgenstein by Donald Hall. And he says, the world is everything that is the case. Now stop your blubbering and wash your face. <laughs> and so I would think about this poem as I was writing this book. And really the book is sort of about the conflict between the imperfect world that Sam and Sadie live in and the perfect worlds they're trying to build. And so when I was writing the book and what I hope somebody takes away from it, is a sense of that, that like cynicism is not a useful stance, <laughs> I guess. Well, the book is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Gabrielle Zevin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> that was Gabrielle Zevin, author of the book Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which was published by Knopf. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Stadzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens. Our producer is Haley Krausen, and our marketing assistant is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.